0: I'm Chris Reback. This is Call-In. With Dr. Alexandria White, we discuss business leadership in our time of social change, when to call in, when to call out, and how to build sustainable business value today. Today's topic, how corporate boards should consider DEI. Before our conversation though, an ask from us to you. We hope you like these call-in conversations, and if so, we'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to wherever you listen to podcasts, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast.
1: Our show is brought to you by Clayton Dubilier and Rice, which is committed to a more diverse and inclusive future. Let's call in.
0: Ron, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your
2: time. What's my pleasure. It's great to be here with you.
0: Alex and I have been looking forward to this. Why don't we get right into it? Ron, How should a board think about DEI as a priority? When and where should they get involved? Why is it important?
2: Well, that's a very important question. I would say for boards, it should be thought about as a business imperative that every company that wants to grow its market share, be a force and a presence in its market, has to understand the customers that it serves. In order to do that, the company's leadership, company's board, the employee's workforce, should be fully inclusive of the communities that it serves. So the business case for it is really the fundamentally important reason for it. Now, McKinsey's done some great research on this that demonstrates that diverse companies, when they're diverse on gender, ethnicity, hosts host of other factors, outperform companies that are not. The quality of their decision-making appears to be better. And so if you're on the board and you're trying to figure out Your job is to ensure the long-term prosperity and success of the business. Paying attention to this is a core part of your responsibility.
0: Is there anything that gets in the way when you think about the opportunities? What are the typical obstacles?
2: I would say the typical obstacles center around the fact that raising this topic is often a difficult topic for board members. Mm. And I think one of the things I see is that boards have to avoid the woman director being the advocate for women and being the only advocate in the room. They have to avoid the Hispanic director or the Asian director or the African-American director being the only director who's concerned with these issues. So what gets in the way is simply lack of familiarity and sometimes Mm. personal uncomfortableness with this. There's also a question between what's the board's role and what's management's role Mm. and where does the board need to exercise its oversight and review of policies and procedures separate from worrying about the implementation and carrying it out as a management function.
1: You mentioned board, you mentioned employees, employers. I want to talk a little bit about the healthcare industry and labor shortage. We know your wonderful history with Aetna. At Reboot Excel, we have been doing more and more consulting with healthcare companies. We recently did some consulting with directors of nursing, and they're all exhausted and stressed in talking about labor shortage. So how do you think inclusive management ties to retaining healthcare professionals?
2: I think the fundamental question we have to recognize is that we owe our caregivers a huge debt of gratitude for what they have done during this horrific pandemic. And so I would start with a big thank you to all of them, whether they're physicians, nurses, doctors, nurses, aides, you name it. They have done a fabulous job for us. The reality is that the more an organization can be attractive to a diverse workforce. The easier it is to retain, the easier it is to recruit, and Mm -hmm. easier it is to keep employees engaged in the organization when they look up and see others like themselves who have been able to achieve Mm -hmm. senior level positions on the basis of their performance and contribution to the organization. So I think given the shortage, given the demands for labor, there's a really important role that organizations can play by being a welcoming place that all people feel comfortable. I think there's another dimension of increasing the supply and helping individuals who may think those occupations are beyond their reach really understand the paths to entering these professions
1: you said a statement, how can we get more people interested in this profession? It's not on their radar. I think that's a great thing to consider because there's so many people retiring and they're exhausted. What might companies do? This is just for healthcare. I'm just thinking about this. What can healthcare companies do to increase the pool of applicants who might initially not have thought about working in the field?
2: This is a great example of what I think of as public-private partnerships reaching out to the community colleges, reaching out to the high schools, and really helping children who are at those early years of their education. They're finishing high school, they're entering a community college, and they're trying to make choices. And they might not have that on their radar screen. And so this place where reaching out, being engaged in the community, actually showing people a path, whether that path could be something like a pharmacy technician, which is a great entry point. I've seen many young people who work next to a pharmacy technician. They would come in one day and say, I could do that. I could learn to be a pharmacist and start down that path.
0: Ron, as you know, this is not my first conversation with you. I've had the great pleasure of getting to hear from you about your background and about why the topics that we're discussing today are important to you. Why does this topic matter to you? And then two, I'm sure that you've noticed at least in the last several years, many other CEOs are starting to catch up to you in terms of understanding that inclusive leadership is something that matters. Why do you think it's starting to become increasingly important and increasingly recognized by other CEOs? Maybe it's just that they all read your book?
2: Well, I certainly hope so. (laughs) I would say that, one, I've been extremely fortunate in my life and my career. And I often say that I was probably one of the least likely people in the world to ever become the CEO of a Fortune 77 company. I got there really by virtue of a lot of help, a lot of Mm -hmm. luck, but really a refusal to let other people define who I was and what I could become. Mm -hmm. As a result of that, I've always had a very strong, deep interest in development, in leadership. I have eight people who have worked for me who are CEOs, half of them are women. You know, in my household, dinner table talk was not about what happened at the law firm or in the office that day. And so I think we all have this obligation to help others who are not as fortunate as we are see beyond their horizon. Mm -hmm. For me, that's one of my areas of deep personal interest. And I see a lot more CEOs recognizing selfishly in the context of your question, there is a war for talent. There are not enough people who can replace the generation that's leaving, back to one of the earlier questions. so if you want to get more than your share, you better be a desirable destination who looks after employees, who has development, who really nurtures the talent that is embedded in a diverse population.
1: I want to go back to the personal part. I remember listening to you on Chris's podcast and at the Agilon Town Hall and various YouTube videos. And I look at this African-American man, and I listen to your stories. And as a first-generation college student, as a first-generation terminal degree holder, I'm of the first in a lot of my family, paternal and maternal. And I look at you, and I think, what is his story? Who mentored him? How many times was he the only in a room? And i just like to unpack or hear some words of wisdom of how you dealt with that. And did you have mentors and coaches or people that you could just call and vent to? I remember your story about someone asking you if you were the help at, I think it was an airport. And any advice to people who might just be the only, like me, whether you're the only woman in a room, the only minority in the room, the only person with a disability. I'd love to hear any words of wisdom, Ron.
2: Well, I would say that throughout my career, I have been very often and most frequently the only one in the room. And I learned early that I was not going to make it my problem. I was going to make it someone else's problem who was concerned about it. And the best advice I ever got from someone was when they draw a circle that excludes you, draw a bigger circle and include yourself. I give examples to young professionals who don't come from backgrounds where they played golf or went sailing. Right. And right. people who work together, and you know, you go in a meeting and people are talking about what did you do this weekend Well, I went sailing? And you have no idea what they're talking about. And what I explain to them is don't worry about it. Go over, start a conversation. How did you learn to sail? When did you get interested in it? And really include yourself. And I like to use the phrase, elbow your way to the table. Don't let people exclude you. I love it you belong
1: there. You learned it. Elbow your way to the table. I'm writing that down.
0: Yeah, I am too. This isn't where I was meaning to go, Ron, but does that ever end? Does the elbowing ever end? Or do you reach a stage as you have where maybe you start to elbow even more on behalf of others?
2: Well, I think the answer is that you have an obligation to help the next generation actually go beyond where you are today. And so I spend a good deal of time supporting education in a wide variety of ways, but also individual mentoring and coaching of individuals, many of whom are in C-suites across America, who really are trying to figure out, how do I get to the corner office? Or I'm almost to the C-suite, and what do I need to learn? What do I need to do? What do I need to demonstrate? So the answer is no. It's not that you stop the elbowing. It's that it's less about me because I've done what I've done. It speaks for itself. It's really helping others who can benefit from your perspective and experience, both individually and more importantly, collectively.
1: For me, I didn't see a lot of women of color in my profession or I didn't have them as mentors. So it's incumbent upon me to do that for someone else, to be that mentor, that sponsor, because I didn't have it. And so just hearing that is just so impactful.
2: And, you know, I think one of the points that I talk about, because it's really, I think, an important issue, is when companies begin to focus on this, the whole question of how does the balance of the workforce feel about the emphasis on these areas? And Mm -hmm. one of the points I try to stress is this is about increasing competition. And in some instances, competition has not been fair. And that's just the way it was. And one of the examples I use is I'm old enough to remember when, to be a police officer, you had to be about six feet tall. Mm -hmm. And people figured out over time that that had very little to do with being a good police officer. And so all of a sudden, you found the person who pretty much had a lock on the job, they were 6'2", they would been in the military, they had a good record. All of a sudden, they're competing against a dramatically broader set of candidates. And if that person wasn't picked, the answer could easily be, I'm not the right demographic. No, the answer is, we better understand the real critical criteria for success. And in that competitive arena, there are other well-qualified candidates which you have to compete against. And so that's a fundamentally important issue that I think is important to talk about when we talk about these areas. We're broadening the competition.
0: Ron, we're listening to you, and it's inspiring. I'm picking up on ways that any of us have to continue to pay things forward. And that has a real positive sense to it. I wanna ask you about the other side. I wanna ask you about some of the challenges, particularly in today's political environment, where companies that are seeking to take action run into some obstacles. The one that comes to mind most often for most of us recently was Disney in Florida. And there's now, we've all seen the articles, questions about who wants to be the next CEO to put their neck out there. How should a CEO think about balancing, pushing forward, integrating ideals or a point of view into their business versus not because of the environment that we're in?
2: It's a very complicated issue for CEOs, but one they cannot avoid. I encourage CEOs to really look at the mission, the values, the culture of the company. And to recognize that businesses in general make great foils for politicians, you have to understand that politicians have fundamentally different objectives. And it's basically to get elected, period. The companies have to recognize they can't take a position on every conceivable issue that their employees might wish them to. And this is where laying out to the employees what they stand for, where they will take a position, and sometimes the range of options that the company has. And also, the CEOs have an obligation to build those relationships in advance. My experience was when I met a politician, if I had not seen them personally five or six times, they didn't know who I was and couldn't remember who I was. (laughs) And so you can't show up for the first time with, you know, a issue that you want to deal with. You've got to build up that relationship with them. Now, sometimes the way the company has to play the issue is a phone call quietly Mm -hmm. to the right people on the right committees in advance. And you have to be for something. It doesn't pay to be against things. You have to figure out what you're for. You also quite honestly have to be mindful of being used by both sides of an issue. One side will characterize it one way. Another side will characterize it another way. Both may be right or both may be wrong. So you really have to have wise counsel that can help you sort out when and where can you and should you insert
1: yourself. I want to interject, Ron. We started off with board members. So what about those board members that have political agendas too? Yes, we talked about the politician. We talked about your company. But there are board members who also have a lot of power over CEOs and C-suite. So how do you navigate those individuals as well?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I've been a part of many of these tough conversations and I've explained to people that I was almost 17 years old before my father could actually have voted in the county he was raised in. And so that was a constant topic of dinner table conversation in my house. That's the experience other board members didn't have. And I think we had many robust conversations, but there was a practical reality with other companies that I spoke with, other board members, that some of these companies, you're in a regulated industry. You've got to go before the Senate, the House, for rate regulation and various things. And so there are, in reality, practical constraints on what companies can do. I think boards can have very robust debates The reality is they're there to represent the shareholders, and the board doesn't and can't always do what you think they should personally do. Where they can't do it publicly, a lot of times they're able to do it quietly through contributions, donations, and legal support. So I would say when you don't see companies doing things that you think they ought to be doing you should not presume that there was not a very robust and in some instances heated discussion in the boardroom, but a recognition of their role from a shareholder perspective that they're there to preserve the long-term viability of the company.
1: Thank you. So you're a board member. Let's talk about Agilon Health, a company deeply committed to building an inclusive culture. I've been working as a consultant with Agilon. Close to two and a half years, and I can say that they are deeply committed. What initiatives have had the greatest impact that you've seen Agilani has been doing or planned to do? And as a board member, how are you measuring this?
2: I think in terms of impact, the company's leadership has to be reflective. The board is reflective in terms of women, ethnicities of different types on the board, and the senior management team as well. What the company has been doing is really highly focused on being an employer of choice, a place that people can get the development and the opportunity. And because it's growing so rapidly, it it is a great place for talent of all types and all genders and all ethnicities to be able to build a great career. The town hall meetings that they have have been very effective. I've done a few of those sessions myself. And I think the employee engagement groups, which they've started, will be another important contributor. I think they started with the African-American group. They'll have a Hispanic group. They'll have groups for working parents, a way for employees to come together and make certain that the company is listening with great fidelity to their particular issues. And they can give us counsel and guidance that can help make us a better business.
1: You mentioned the employee resource groups at Agilon. They also have a wonderful mentoring program that they're doing. Can you give us the name of one of your mentors?
2: I laugh because my first mentor is the CEO of Steve C. So.
1: <laughs> He likes Steve
0: very, very well played, Ron. That's, <laughs> very talk well. about the political. And just to show you, you're not the only one who can play that game, my mentor is Dr. Alexandra White. <laughs> Ron, thank you. Thank you for uh, your time, for your insights. And for the work that you not only do, but I know from having, again, had the benefit of listening to you previously that I know that you've done for many, many decades now. Thank you so much for your time.
2: My pleasure. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thank you. you. you.